MSW Media. Thanks to Lomi for supporting the Daily Beans. Start making a positive impact on the environment with the Lomi Home Composter. Get $50 off when you go to Lomi.com slash Daily Beans and use code Daily Beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, December 15th, 2022. Today, the Trump organization was held in contempt in a secret trial last year. There's a fight over which party controls the Pennsylvania House. The Department of Justice has arrested a Florida pastor and his son for defrauding taxpayers in an $8 million COVID scam. Rep. Jamie Raskin speaks about criminal referrals from the 1-6 committee to the Department of Justice. And Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton demands lists of transgender persons from the Texas DPS. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Happy Thursday. It's AG. Dana is out. She had a meeting come up, so I'm going to cover today. Thank you for listening. Uh, there's also maybe some dog barking in the background, so I hope you enjoy that because they're here with me today. I can't I can't do anything about it, but uh, I appreciate your patience. And then, of course, patrons, if you're wondering why you've upped your membership to $5 a month and you're still not getting the jack pod along with the Daily Beans pod, it's because you actually have to change your tier. You can't just change the amount. You have to go in and change your tier to the justice enforcers level, which is $5 a month, because upping your $3 a month to $5 won't do it. So I just wanted to kind of make that clarification for everybody in case you were wondering what's going wrong with that. And I appreciate your support. The shows would not be possible without you. And Andrew McCabe, I know, thanks you as well. So we have a lot of news to get to today. Uh, I thought it would be like some, I had a feeling some big, crazy news was going to drop. Didn't really happen that way. So maybe we're actually slowing down for the holiday a little bit. And speaking of which, we will be off the air that week of Christmas, not next week, but the following week. So I just wanted you to be aware of that because all of our editors and hosts and uh, network uh, managers and every all the whole staff is going to have that break. So I just wanted to, you know, make it clear. Now, I'll probably be posting some audio stuff up on Patreon for our patrons uh, in your premium feed. So you can look for that in case there's any crazy breaking news. I will definitely bring it to you. Do not worry. All right. And speaking of the news, though, we do have some stories today. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. This is from Bromwich et al. at the New York Times. Donald's family business, that's the Trump organization, which just was found guilty on 17 counts of tax fraud and stuff, lost a criminal contempt trial that was held in secret last fall, according to a newly unsealed court document and several people familiar with the matter, with a judge ruling against the Trump organization almost exactly a year before it was convicted of tax fraud schemes last week. The document, a judicial order released Tuesday, showed that in October of 2021, so not this past October, but the October before that, a one-day contempt trial was held after prosecutors with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office requested that the company be punished for willfully disobeying four grand jury subpoenas and three court orders enforcing compliance. Trump really just has a problem complying with subpoenas, with grand jury subpoenas. This is the Manhattan DA, though, not a federal grand jury subpoena. 
And so they held a little trial about it. And that was October 21. Give you like, that's when I started to want a special counsel named for the federal stuff. But regardless, the order dated December 8th, 2021 was unsealed by the judge who presided over the tax fraud trial of the Trump organization, which ended last week, as I said, with a conviction of the company. It redacted the name of the entities on trial in October, but the people with knowledge of the case confirmed that entity was the Trump organization and the Trump payroll organization. There were two of them. The judge, Juan Merchan, convicted the two corporations of criminal contempt of court and fined them $4,000. I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but that is the maximum penalty allowed under law. Seems strange to me. They should go by some sort of percentage of the net profits or something. Four grand? That's pocket change. Quote, the record is clear that the company failed to produce responsive documents without explanation. That was what Judge Merchant wrote in his order. The fine amounts to less than a slap on the wrist, but the contempt order underscores the pitfalls, Trump's go-to legal strategy of delaying proceedings and fighting subpoenas whenever possible. It was the second time in less than a year that Mr. Trump or his company was held in contempt for failing to turn over documents. The other instance came in the New York Attorney General Tish James' civil inquiry into the former president's business practices. Remember, she filed for contempt and it was granted. A spokeswoman for the Manhattan DA's office, Alvin Bragg, declined to comment Tuesday, and a spokeswoman for the Trump Organization didn't immediately respond for comment. The October contempt trial was kept secret because it's related to subpoenas issued by a grand jury, the work of which is sealed. The grand jury remained active after the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Weisselberg, were charged in July of 2021. Remember, I was on vacation and those indictments dropped. Trump was also held in contempt of court in April amid Tish James's civil investigation. Lawyers from her office accused him of not fully complying with his subpoena as well. And Judge Arthur Engeron imposed a $110,000 penalty. In September, Ms. James sued Mr. Trump, three of his children, and his company for $250 million, accusing them of overvaluing their assets by billions of dollars. Last week, as we know, a federal judge, Judge Beryl Howell, declined to grant a motion for request for contempt from federal prosecutors to find him in contempt for his post-presidential office for failure to comply with the May documents subpoena at Mar-a-Lago. And from Kyle Cheney at Politico, in his most expansive remarks yet on how he and his January 6th select panel colleagues are deciding which witnesses to recommend for prosecution, Jamie Raskin said the panel is largely relying on publicly known evidence but applying prosecutorial analysis. Quote, most of the evidence has been seen before, and it's a question of synthesizing and analyzing it. But I think in some cases, there may be evidence that has not yet come to light. And I can't help but think that might be the witness tampering and obstruction stuff, you know, that kind of along those lines, like when they were trying, you know, called up Cassidy Hutchinson and said, we know you're loyal, et cetera. Now, Raskin is leading a four-member subset of the select panel that is making recommendations about who should be referred for criminal prosecution by the DOJ. And that panel is Liz Cheney, Schiff, Zoe Lofgren, and of, of course, Raskin, all of whom are attorneys. Asked how the subcommittee was analyzing the evidence and synthesizing it to make the recommendations, he said, I think all of us have various degrees of prosecutorial and trial experience. Law school final exams are made up of a bunch of potential defendants or potential offenses. And we're going through the painstaking work of analyzing how much evidence we have and which things we think rise to the level of referral to the full committee. They're going to make these referrals to the full committee. Then the full committee will vote on Monday to make the full referrals to the Department of Justice. 
Raskin declined to say whether the subcommittee's recommendations have all been unanimous. So we'll see how that goes. I'm going to be watching Monday. I'll be live tweeting it at Mueller, she wrote. I'm looking forward to it. And from Hennessy Fisk at The Post, employees at the Texas Department of Public Safety, the DPS, in June received a sweeping request from Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton's office, who's, by the way, under federal criminal indictment for the last seven years, to compile a list. They want to compile a list of people who have changed their gender on their Texas driver's license and other department records during the past two years. Quote, need total number of changes from male to female and female to male for the last 24 months broken down by month. That was the chief of the DPS's driver's license division in an email to colleagues in the department on June 30th of this year. And that's according to a copy of the message obtained by the Washington Post through public records requests. Quote, we won't need driver's license and ID numbers at first, but may need to have them later if we're required to manually look up documents, unquote. Now, after more than 16,000 such instances were identified by the DPS, officials at the DPS determined that a manual search would be needed to determine the reason for the changes. That's according to DPS spokesman Travis Considine when he spoke to the Washington Post. Quote, a verbal request was received. Ultimately, our team advised the attorney general's office the data requested neither exists nor could be accurately produced. Thus, no data of any kind was provided. Asked who in Paxton's office requested the records, he replied, I cannot say. The behind-the-scenes effort by Paxton's office to obtain data on how many Texans had changed their gender on their license came as the attorney general and Governor Greg Abbott and other Republican leaders in the state have been publicly marshalling resources against transgender Texans. Paxton's office did not respond to requests for comment. The records obtained by the Washington Post, which document communications between DPS employees, are entitled, quote, AG request sex change data and, quote, AG data request. They indicate that Paxton's office sought the records a month after, a month after the state Supreme Court ruled that Paxton and Abbott had overreached in their efforts to investigate families with transgender children for child abuse. This is straight-up fascist behavior. Asking for a list of others from the state to monitor you. Absolutely terrifying. And, and by the way, requesting it from DPS rather than the Department of Health is a way to get around HIPAA violations. You're just getting driver's license information at that point. So they know it's wrong. Now, in another story, NBC is reporting that a Florida pastor and his son were arrested Wednesday on charges of fraudulently obtaining more than $8 million in federal COVID relief funds and attempting to use some of the money to buy a mansion near Disney World. Evan Edwards and his son Josh were taken into custody five months after an NBC News report raised questions over why they hadn't been charged in the scam which federal prosecutors first identified in court papers in December of 2020. It wasn't immediately clear if the family had hired an attorney. A source familiar with the investigation said NBC News' previous reporting led law enforcement to prioritize the case. Why? Why does media attention elicit a response from law enforcement? That shouldn't be how this works. Now, the case dates back to April 2020 when Josh Edwards applied for a $6 million PPP loan to cover payroll, rent, and utilities for his family's ministry. In the loan application, he claims that the organization, Aslan, 
International Ministry, A-S-L-A-N, International Ministry, had 486 employees and a monthly payroll of $2.7 million. Aslan International was ultimately approved for an $8.4 million loan. But when federal investigators showed up at the ministry's office in Orlando, the door was locked. And workers at the neighboring business told them nobody was ever inside. A review of the ministry's website found that the donation links were inactive and sections of text were apparently lifted from other religious sites. So, a straw company. There were other red flags, too. The man who was listed on the loan application as the ministry's accountant suffered from dementia and hadn't done any work for the organization since 2017. And then federal agents descended on the family's home in New Smyrna Beach about 7 a.m. on Wednesday. Even Edwards was wheeled out of the house in a wheelchair. Agents escorted Josh Edwards out of the home and into law enforcement vehicles. His hands were cuffed behind his back. More news from Campbell Robinson at the Times. More than a month after the elections in Pennsylvania, which were among the most closely watched in the country, a question still remains unanswered in the state's House of Representatives. Who exactly is in charge? And this story is flying under the radar, but I think it has far-ranging implications, especially considering how well Democrats did in state House elections this last midterm. Now, both Democratic and Republican parties right now are claiming a majority in that chamber. And representatives from both parties have declared themselves the House majority leader. Both are accusing the other of ignoring the will of the voters, the rule of law, or some combination of those two things. With a House set to reconvene and presumably choose a speaker in less than three weeks, the question now sits with the courts. Election day was largely disappointing for Pennsylvania Republicans who fell short in the race for governor and with the victory of John Fetterman, the generously tattooed Democrat, lost their seat. In the U.S. Senate, we flipped that seat. Democrats also won a majority of seats in the state house for the first time in a dozen years, even as Republicans maintain control of the Senate. But the margin in the House appeared to be wefer thin, 102 to 101, decided by fewer than 65 votes in the race in Philadelphia and the suburbs. It turned out to be even more tenuous. One of the victorious lawmakers had died. In early October, Anthony DeLuca, unfortunately 85, a Democrat who represented a district in Pittsburgh in the suburbs, who was the longest serving member of the Pennsylvania House, died of complications from lymphoma. His death occurred too close to the election to replace his name on the ballot, and a month later, he was reelected in a landslide. Republicans saw a stalemate. Until a special election could be held in Mr. DeLuca's district, they reasoned each party had 101 representatives, and neither could claim majority in the House. An opinion issued last Wednesday by the Pennsylvania Legislative Reference Bureau, which is a nonpartisan advisory body, seemed to concur. Under current law, they said, an individual must at least be elected and living to qualify as a member of a legislative caucus, adding that the House Democratic Caucus falls short of the 102 members necessary for a majority. Now, that same day, two Democratic representatives who had won their House races, but who in the same election had been voted into higher office, Summer Lee, who's now an incoming U.S. Congresswoman, and Austin Davis, Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor-elect, formally resigned their House seats. Republicans concluded that they now had a majority outright because of those resignations, at least until special elections took place for all three seats. Of course, Democrats see things differently, as do I. Voters had chosen a Democratic majority. They had chose Democrats in 102 of the 203 districts, and by particularly overwhelming margins in the three seats that are now vacant. 
quote, we won 102 districts compared to the Republicans 101. That's Joanna McClinton, the House Democratic leader. And according to her, the majority leader said in an interview, it's a fact, it's indisputable. Within hours of her two fellow Democrats' resignations last week, Ms. McClinton was sworn into office in an otherwise empty House chamber. She then scheduled elections for all three of the vacant seats on February 7th, the earliest date possible under state rules, and Pennsylvania's acting Secretary of State, a Democrat, signed off on the plan. Republicans were very upset about this, accusing the Democrats of having staged a paperwork insurrection. Within days, Representative Brian Cutler, the leader of the House Republicans, sued the Secretary of State, arguing that McClinton was not the House Majority Leader and thus lacked the authority to set special elections. On Monday morning, it was Mr. Cutler's turn to be sworn in on the House floor. In an interview afterwards, he said that since he was the House Republican leader and since there were 101 Republicans ready to take office compared to 99 Democrats, the math makes me majority leader. That's not really going with the will of the people. Mr. Cutler said he would soon submit his own dates for the special election, but that the recent moves by the Democrats had made it too complicated to figure out the dates just yet. And what happens now is anyone's guess. There's also a lot of concern that if this Republican is granted speakership, even though Democrats won the majority, and he sets the elections for further down the road, do the Republicans take that opportunity to pass laws to keep themselves in power? Ah, we'll have to find out. But those three seats are landslide Democrat seats. That's just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, some other news of interest today. Elon Musk is no longer the world's richest man. He lost over $100 billion in 2022 alone. And he lost the top spot to uh, the guy who owns Louis Vuitton. Name escapes me. Donald says he's going to make some major announcement today because America needs to be saved. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to announce his VP pick, which could be Carrie Lake, or if he's running for Speaker of the House or or bringing back Trump stakes or what. But whatever it is, uh, who cares, really? Steven Spielberg has acquired the movie rights to Maddow's Ultra podcast. That's very cool. Congratulations to Rachel Maddow. Nancy Pelosi's portrait was unveiled today in Congress. My friend uh, Harry Dunn sent me some video from that ceremony. Absolutely stunning portrait. Peter Navarro's contempt trial has been pushed back again to January 30th from January 10th, 20-day delay, by Judge Amit Mehta. The minute order didn't say why, but it's probably due to the fact that there's other trials on his docket that have run long. I don't think there's anything untoward here. So just a couple of other news pieces. All right, we will be right back with the good news. If you have any good news you want to send to us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com. And just click on contact. I look forward to reading it. We'll be right back after the break. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. So for the longest time, I wanted to start composting because I know how much of a negative impact on the environment food waste in landfills has. It so much releases so much methane into the atmosphere. Uh, but, you know, I was always like, I thought it was too complicated. I certainly think I didn't have the space for it. Uh, but then I discovered Lomi. It's amazing. It's made everything so much easier than I expected. Lomi is a countertop electric composter. It's odor-free, it's mess-free, and uh, it's a great way to keep your food waste out of landfills. It fits into any size kitchen, big or small. It makes your food waste disappear in less than four hours. Lomi turns my food scraps into dirt with just the touch of a button, and it's finished in less than four hours. There's no smell when it runs. It's very quiet. It looks awesome. It's a beautiful unit. I love my Lomi. 
And thanks to Lomi, I've gone from three bags of garbage every week to just one. Now, I feel great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of waste. And I now have basically a limitless supply of dirt from my herb garden. It's a real win-win situation for both me and the environment. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans, all one word, at checkout to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I, Lomi.com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play What the Mutt, where I try to guess the breeds of your rescue pup, or you have some baby photos you want to send to Dana, or you want to give a shout out to a small business in your area, or you want to give a shout out to somebody you love or a hero, someone who's a hero to you, or, you know, you want to send pet photos with that are in costumes. And also, I would love to read your amazingly cute and slash or hilarious letters to Santa for a special Things Kids Say Holiday Edition. First up, we have a submission from Michael, pronouns he and him. Good goddamn morning, my fellow swearers. My wife and I had our first kid in August, and since then, my time allotted for podcasts has been pretty slim. It was outright good luck that I discovered this podcast around that same time, which allowed me to shed a handful of others and consolidate my daily listening, just the most important stuff, keeping up on how fucked Donald Trump is. (laughs) With great hosts, guests, and nonstop cautious optimism, you can't beat Daily Beans and the extended MSW universe. I'm attaching a creature tax. I've never been a fan of the term fur baby, especially because of the implied counterpart for referring to actual human flesh puppies. Pictured below is our two-year-old Mutt Lena and four-month-old Desi. Breed spoiler. I'm not going to read it. I'm fast-forwarding through it, so I can't see it. Uh, Oh my gosh, look at this beautiful, beautiful puppy. I don't know, German Shepherd, Chihuahua, Mix. If it's a very young dog, maybe Malinois in there. And the baby is absolutely adorable. Let's see. Australian cattle dog, pit, boxer, German shepherd, and more. Okay. That make the German shepherd makes sense with the ears. I got one right. Thank you very much for that submission, Michael. And congratulations on the baby. Next up from Jim in Indiana, pronouns he and him, Allison and Dana. How about a book wreck that I think you and your listeners might appreciate to either give or receive as a gift? The author, as me, Syme Smith, and I both hang out in another author's, Tamora Pierce's Facebook fan group. I bought the book on release day and read, listened to it this past weekend. I highly recommend it for middle grade and YA readers, or those like me who love reading books for those ages. 37 years of teaching will do that to you. <laughs> Jim, that makes sense. Sir Callie and the Champions of Helston is the story of a young person born female, but who identifies as they, them. In this fantasy world, they are not allowed to become a page, squire, and knight because they are not seen as a boy. Here is the positive review at Kirkus. We'll have a link to that. Quote, an aspiring knight stands against the injustice at work in their own kingdom, even as war with a vengeful witch looms on the horizon. Twelve-year-old Callie longs to train in the royal capital of Helston, but the rigid laws of the realm forbid it. 
Only boys may pursue knighthood and only girls may learn magic, but Callie isn't either. When the Lord Chancellor demands that Callie's father, the former king's champion, return to Helston to train the crown prince for an upcoming tournament and the rising threat of war, Callie seizes the chance to go with him, determined to prove their worth. With the help of two unexpected new friends, the Lord Chancellor's daughter and the crown prince, Callie rallies the courage to fight for change. Passing descriptions of background characters indicate diversity in the wider world. The central characters are white. Callie confronts transphobia and internalized shame. When well-meaning but flawed adults try to press for insubstantial change and unfair compromises, Callie and their friends refuse to give up or stop questioning their discrimination within their society. Gentle and affirming romance blossoms gradually throughout the story. A frank and vivid acknowledgement of menstruation stands out as an important moment of inclusion with a coming-of-age narrative. The resolution balances hope with the lingering suspense of lurking danger awaiting Callie in future adventures. Pet Tax is flit, flit lounging in her pool this past summer. Okay, that's a beautiful dog. And that's a beautiful story. Again, it's called, um, get it here, Sir Callie and the Champions of Helston. And uh, it's available wherever you get your books. This is why Flit has a pool to lounge in. <laughs> That's pretty adorable. That is, a, that is a really beautiful pup. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for sharing that story. They go on to say, when we got her when she was about six months old from an animal rescue in Columbus, Indiana, after they got her from an overcrowded rescue in Tennessee. At first, we thought she might have some long-haired dachshund and German shepherd in the ancestry. We finally got around to having her DNA tested, and it shows up with 22 breeds. Good luck guessing. Okay. Uh, German Shepherd, Golden Retriever, one of those uh, Catalua hound dogs. What are those? I see. I'm so bad at this. Chow, Boxer. Um, It's got a Mastiff kind of a coloring. All right, let's see what we've got down here. Pitbull, Chihuahua, Husky, Border Collie, Cattle Dog, Shepherd, Miniature Pincher, Chow Chow, I got one, Staffordshire, Boxer, Basset Hound, Lab, German Shepherd, Collie, Catahoula Leopard Dog, I got one, that's what I meant, uh, Golden Retriever, I got another one, uh, American Eskimo, Pekingese, Miniature American Shepherd, Toy Fox Terrier, and Seguigo Italiano, oh my gosh, that is a lot of breeds, but a beautiful pup nonetheless. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Next up from Michelle. Years ago, when my kids were small, we lived in England for seven months and we visited Walmer Castle frequently. One day during April, we happened upon scenes in the reflecting pool and a grassy moat that were shocking. In the moat were toads caught in the act of canoodling, while in the pool were scores of frogs, toads, both? Well, anyway, not exactly engaged in a frog orgy, but perhaps doing the amphibious equivalent of smoking their cigarettes while basking in the afterglow. It's the best I can do for you, AG. I'm also attaching a pic of a ball of frog eggs with a strand of toad eggs around it. Egg orgy? And one of the gazillion little froglets we saw in the same reflecting pool in June. Thanks for keeping me caught up on the news while brightening my morning commutes. Of course someone would have a photo of this for me. Look at this. Hi, froggies. That is a lot of frogs and toads and stuff. Oh, there's some eggs. Oh, look at the tiny froglet. Oh my goodness, that's so cute. Thank you for sending these in. Seriously, this is the first one. I hope the first one of many. Thank you very much. Next up, Sword of Damocles, pronounced she and her. So thankful for AG and Dana and so grateful for my sponsor, Fairy. 
You guys are a soft place in a hard world, with swearing, of course. This is about a threadbare and worn-out whoopee named Bunny. My nephew is on the spectrum, and when my sister realized the need for Bunny was going to outlast Bunny, the long schmooze began. My sister aced the assignment because she's wonderful. The text from her saying, do you think he'll notice, will never not be hilarious to me. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. Per- this, is, this is so great. Do you think he'll notice? <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Sword of Damocles. I appreciate that Whoopi story. What a beautiful story. From Anonymous, pronouns she and her. Hey, Beans, I have some good news. Such, such good news. On Thursday, I fly to my home in California, but my return to home is not the good news I'm here to share. The good news is that my sister is finally in her home. In late August, I got a phone call that my sister was being admitted to the hospital in need of emergency organ transplant. She had an infection that rapidly caused acute organ failure. Oh my God. She went from healthy and happy to on her deathbed within two to three weeks. I was able to fly home from California and be there when she arrived at the hospital, but she went into a coma within 24 hours. I was only able to talk to her for about 30 minutes before she was carted away. We talked to the team of doctors and got a crash course on transplants the following day, learning everything we could in five hours. The main takeaway was that my sister was going to die if she didn't get a transplant, might die before she got a transplant, and we're working on the timeline of hours to days, not more than four. The first part of the good news is that her transplant was successful and she lived. Although she spent something like 45 days in the hospital and most of them in the ICU, she is recovering. She learned to walk again and talk again, and she's doing fantastic. The second part of the good news is that she was able to reunite with her teenage kids after over 100 days. Part of transplant recovery is that you have to stay within a close distance of hospitals and teams that are looking after you. Unfortunately, that meant my sister had to be away from her kids for nearly four months. The third part of the good news is that I got to drive her home and see her reunite with her kids. It's been an incredible weekend. So much joy after so much pain. The journey is not over, but it is hopeful and positive. Lastly, I want to put this out into the universe. To the family who lost someone in August, we may never know who you are, and I'm sorry for your loss. Your loved one gave life to my sister, and part of them will continue to live on. She is worthy. She's a fantastic mother of two hilarious and smart teenage boys. She's a figure in her community and a lover of the outdoors and the mountains. Without your loss, there would be no light in her life. We are eternally grateful to you and your loved one. And you will always be a part of this new life. I also wanted to say thank you to my partner. I left in August and have only seen them briefly for a few days in October. Thank you for being patient and understanding of my need to take care of my sister. It's truly special that I never doubted our strength as a couple during these trying times. You are my rock, and I can't wait to see you later this week. XOXO. I'll throw in some pet tax because I gotta stop the tears. You may remember him from the beach blowout days a while back. Maxwell, a.k.a. Wookie, the Brussels Griffon. (laughs) Thank you. I needed that pet text at the end of that story. Anonymous. Thank you so much. And thanks to that shout out for the donor. That's really incredible. Wow. 
You guys are the best. Seriously. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for sending in this good news. And uh, anyone who has any good news, if you want to send it into us, please do so at dailybeanspod.com and uh, just click on contact. I'll be back tomorrow. Dana is going to be out for another day, but I will be here for your Friday. Until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been A.G., and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>